I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to bring us our next guest, Dr. Michael Rich. He is also more widely known as the Mediatrician. He's the Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and also of the Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He practices adolescent medicine at Boston's Children's Hospital, where he founded the Clinic for Interactive Media and Internet Disorders which is the first evidence-based medical program addressing physical, mental, and social health issues associated with digital technology. For nearly 20 years, he has been the director for the Center on Media and Child Health, and it studies and provides research-based practical answers to parents, teachers, and clinicians about children's media use and the positive and negative implications for their health and development. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rich. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Well, and um, also probably one of your biggest credentials is you're also a dad. That's my most important and most difficult job. Yes. <laughs> well, I think it's important for parents to know that, to, that you, besides having a clinical practice, you're, you're also living this out in your daily life. Living the dream. 
Yeah, there's there's theory and then there's practice and uh, and sometimes yeah. those two don't necessarily line up. Can you help us understand what the clinic is? If I was to drop into the clinic, like can I show up with my kid and say my kid's addicted to Fortnite? Can you fix them? I mean, what, what what's going on at the clinic? You can show up with your kid and I will argue with you when you use the word addicted because um, what we have found, I mean, I've been taking care of kids who have issues with interactive media really for close to 15 years, but uh, for the last three years, we've had a formalized clinic with a full staff. I partner with a psychiatrist. We have psychologists. We have um, social workers. And like much of adolescent medicine, it's sort of a team approach um, where we deal with different aspects of the young person's life. But what I have to say, why I would argue with you around the word addiction is uh, several fold. It's been a word that's been in play since the mid 90s, um, you know, and it was originally written up by a psychiatrist in a parody of the DSM at that time, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, of Mental Disorders. And Which I still happened, think should be a parody. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But he wrote it up and he got this deluge of people saying, this is real. I suffer from it. And, and so from that point on, people started working on, can you be addicted to gaming or to the internet or things of that nature? In 2008, the Chinese made a diagnosis of uh, internet addiction disorder, and they have um, treatment centers, um, many of which are based on sort of detox or boot camp type models, um, which do not work all that well. But what we have been dealing with here um, is that the current DSM has something called internet gaming disorder that they say requires further study. And I agree with that. What I don't agree with is that it's all about gaming. What we are seeing is four different manifestations. One is gaming more prevalent in boys, uh, social media more prevalent in girls, pornography, which is pretty evenly balanced between the sexes, interestingly, and um, information binging, which is the endless YouTube or Discord or Netflix or Twitch, you know, um, information, either video information or, or textual information. And these kids go down the rabbit hole and don't get out. Now, why I argue about the word addiction is quite simply that an addiction, as we understand it, is when you have physiologic change when using and especially when withdrawing from use. Um, you see that with tobacco, you see that with alcohol, you see that with cocaine or opioids. But what you have with this is a behavioral change, but not a measurable or reproducible physiologic change. Um, and while that may seem like nerdy nitpicking from a doctor, um, the approach is entirely different. You don't have to support them physiologically through it. But the big reason that I don't like the word addiction is I deal with kids. I deal with children and adolescents and young adults. And the word addiction in our society is stigmatizing. And so it keeps people from care. Um, it, you know, they think their kid is just a pain in the butt. That It's not that they're, you know, um, really struggling with something. Um, and so I want to take that stigma off it. I also want to take the technology label off it. It's not gaming or internet or smartphone uh, disorder or addiction. It's not the device that does it to us. It's what we do with the device that matters. And finally, what, what really distinguishes it from addiction is that with any addiction, the therapeutic goal is abstinence. 
is stopping use of this. We can't stop using interactive media in this day and age. We need it to learn, we need it to work, we need it to communicate and connect with people. Um, and so what we are really looking at this as more like binge eating disorder. If you think about it, binge eating disorder is, you know, overuse of a necessary resource, continued overuse despite negative, um, negative consequences, um, that it's driven by non-physiologic need. It's driven by anxiety, by mood disorders, by ADHD. And ultimately, the therapeutic goal here is self-regulation, not abstinence is being able to use these devices effectively and productively and put them down and do other things. Um, and so what, what parents who bring their kids to me are bringing them to me when the child is impaired in some way, they're not getting enough sleep, they're not doing their homework, they're you know, getting into fights with the family and, and it can look really bad um, and it can look uh, you know, like something you can't deal with, but what we have found is that in every case, there is an underlying disorder that we, as in the medical community, already know, like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, that are driving these behaviors. And that this issue, which may even be unnoticed and subclinical outside the interactive media environment, manifests itself in the interactive media environment because it's a pace, place of relative comfort for them. And, and so when we're looking at some of the, the trends and the research and where are you people putting their, their energies now? What are some themes that we would see that you're uh, curious about? Because one thing that I'm curious about is have we found anything that is causative um, to your point, if you already have a pre, pre-existing condition, you already have a propensity to be somebody who's anxious, somebody who has a propensity to not be able to manage mood regulation, and now you're holding on to a device that engages you in a certain way and has been designed with artificial intelligence to keep your eyeballs going, to keep it sticky, to keep it emotional, to keep it dopamine driven, you're setting that child up. But is there anything where you take a, a, a neurotypical brain and everything was going fine and now suddenly these devices cause things to become maladaptive? Well, I will couch this in the fact that in public health, we can never find an absolute cause. We, we have not yet found that smoking tobacco is a cause of lung cancer yet. What we have is a preponderance of evidence that associates use of tobacco with cigarette smoking. But with that in mind, let's look at this. Where I think that we're not finding it is we have yet to find a kid who doesn't have one of these underlying conditions. And when we treat that condition, when we treat the ADHD or the anxiety, the behaviors diminish and often go away. While these devices and games and platforms are very effectively designed to um, hook us in and keep us hooked in because that is their business plan. That is how they make money. It affects us all, but usually not to the point where it's completely disabling, right? And, and so this is, this is the difference between kids who have problematic interactive media use and kids who are just, you know, a little over the top in terms of, of their gaming um, and, or, or their social media or whatever it is they're, they're dealing with. So 
I think that for one thing in public health, it's sort of not done to look for a cause, right? What we look for is relative risk. Is your relative risk increased if you smoke cigarettes rather than do, does smoking cigarettes cause lung cancer? Because everybody that smokes cigarettes doesn't get lung cancer. That would be causative. And that nobody gets lung cancer without smoking cigarettes. But we don't see that. The, the human organism is just too complex for that. And so what we really want to see is how is this young person's behavior impairing their function in physical, mental, and social ways? And how can we alter it so that they can be the best that they can be? And so where is the research focus then? Is it, is it around mental health issues or...? or? It's, it's mostly around, around mental health issues, absolutely. Um, it, especially if you expand it to social health. You know, if we talk about psychosocial functioning in the sense that, <clears throat> you know, if you're, if you're good in the psychosocial realm, you're able to interact with people, you're able to, you know, go to school, you're able to do things. And some of these kids really fall down on the social side, um, particularly those kids who have issues um, with social media because often they go to social media because it feels safer to them if they have social anxiety. It feels more arm's length and asynchronous. Um, and, and yet they go there and then they measure the amount of likes they get or the amount of, of, of clicks they get. They also look to everyone else and everyone else looks like they are happier and more successful because we are not using social media right yet. We are using social media exactly the way the companies do. We use it to, to market ourselves to other people. We show all this cool stuff I'm doing. We show this new car I got. We show you know my hot boyfriend or whatever. And so when someone who is socially anxious goes online, goes on social media to seek connection and sees that everyone else is better than they are, it actually makes their social anxiety worse. And yet they can't step out of that. They can't turn it off. Uh, They're they caught up in this whole thing of how much clout do I have with a K? You know, how, how, how many uh, clicks do I get? And, and to not participate is to also be invisible. So to, to, your, to your point about we can never take it down to zero, um, that's not the answer either. There's, uh... Well, we can't, we can't take it down to zero for reasons of functioning in the world, going to school, communicating, et cetera. But some people can't go down to zero socially either. And I think one of the things, we talk a lot about FOMO, about why people have the fear of missing out and that drives them to this. With adolescence, it's something a little bit different. I call it faux blow. Okay, say fear, more about that. Fear of being left out. So that they want to be online with the chatter, whatever's going on. And one of the reasons why we see that 58% of kids who are involved in cyberbullying never report it to an adult. And the reason they do is not because they think that the adult doesn't care or the adult won't do something, but because of what they're concerned that the adult will do, which is take away their device or take away their platform. Um, and so they see what the parents or you know teachers or supervisors of some kind may see as a vector of harm, the kids see as their shield, as, as their way of knowing what's going on. 
So I have a real um, ongoing conversation with parents in my practice about not taking away tech as being the punishment for all transgressions. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> or, or a reward, right? I mean, this business of you get straight A's and I'll buy you an iPhone sort of thing. The only role for altering their access to screens is their behavior on screens, right? You know, then, then it's appropriate. The punishment must fit the crime. And so I think that that's, it's really important that we approach these not as toys or rewards, but as tools. And as tools that can do a lot of good when used effectively and tools that can cause harm when used mindlessly. And so, you know, I equate it often to teaching your child to drive a car, which is another, you know, freedom giving device that also can cause harm when used badly. We don't sit in the front seat of the car and say, don't run into that tree. Don't run over that person. We teach them to drive and we teach them to master the experience. And, and in the process, they learn to be safe. And that's why I push back against the concept of internet safety. Internet safety comes from a well-intentioned place that sees the internet as an unsafe place. We can't afford to see the internet as an unsafe place. It is part of our world. And one of the, the real issues between generations often is that adults often think of online and offline lives. For kids, it's seamless. It is all one environment. And we have to enter that space and parent them in that space. And, you know, as you're saying that, if it's one world and it's transparent or, or intermingled from a child's and an adolescent's point of view, wouldn't we hope that their worldview would be one that says that the world is a safe place for me? Yes, we have to be wise and smart the same as we have to be street smart. Right. But if we sell them on the notion that it's harmful, I would think that would be more anxiety provoking, more inhibitory in terms of growth and development than to say you're in a, a generally safe and secure environment, a healthy yeah. growth environment. Absolutely. And, and you've hit the nail on the head on why we founded the Center on Media and Child Health 18 years ago. And it's quite simply that what was out there and what's been out there since at least the early 50s with, you know, congressional hearings about television and whether gun smoke contributed to juvenile delinquency is that we've approached screens with a values base. We go to them and we think of what's good and what's bad. What, you know, and we think of them, you know, as the, the idiot box or the boob tube, it, like it's entirely bad. And so most of the work that's been done has really been in the advocacy realm in terms of turn it off, shut it down, limit it, reduce it. And I think that's unrealistic. I, I think that that is not a good way to approach it. First of all, it makes it the forbidden fruit and it makes the kids want it all that much more. The reality is that this is a very powerful tool that we need to be adept with. We need to be using really well and using mindfully. And so. I want kids to embrace these devices when they are old enough to need them and to use them responsibly. So by that token, does a middle schooler need a smartphone? The functions that a middle schooler needs from a phone are calling and texting, right? Everything else is fun and games. And actually, this is one of the things that I think is a silver lining of COVID is that 
prior to the lockdown um, and to remote schooling, kids saw screens as pure playground, a place to go, you know, when they get home from school, get on there and play a game or go on social media or whatever. Now they need these screens to learn. They need these screens to communicate and collaborate with their friends on projects. They, they need them for everything. And when it gets to the end of the school day, they are just as likely to shut it down and go outside and ride their bike and shoot hoops or something, you know, that, it, that they are actually experiencing the same kind of Zoom fatigue that adults are. Um, but they're coming to it as their own discovery rather than being told by parents, turn it off and go out and shoot hoops. Well, so, so interesting of, of the things that parents are speaking to me about as being concerns during COVID is, you know, are the teens are um, not able to meet face to face. So they're on their tech more. I hear, I hear that. And they're worried about the tech time as the only way of connecting in real life versus virtual. And I've, well, I've said they, they need to connect. That's part of good right. mental health. But right. the other piece is, we'll ask you about screen time and how we measure it. But when you're supposed to be online doing schoolwork and your parent walks behind your chair and sees that you actually are watching YouTube videos, the parent can't take away the device anymore like, the, like they could before because they actually are required to be online. They're just not doing the right thing online. And they want to know how they can handle that situation. Well, I mean, the way to handle it is to inform and empower the young person. Um, because, you know, if you create a police environment, you know, uh, they will work, ar- work around it. Um, and actually, for those parents of adolescents um, who are concerned that the kids are doing all their socializing online, remind them that you can't get pregnant from a smartphone. Right. That may be the so, it, news that a parent could hear today. <laughs> right. No, so, so, I mean, there, there are positives and negatives here, right? You know, yeah. and, and so this is, this is a, a good thing. But, no, I think that what we need to do is be supporters and nurturers of our children in their media use, just like we are in, you know, their nutrition or, you know, injury prevention or, you know, learning how to develop and sustain relationships. That's what I mean about digital parenting, about parenting the digital space. And so one of the things you can do in a case like that is the kid is convinced that she or he is able to watch YouTube and listen to their physics teacher at the same time. We and others have done research on what is called media multitasking. And we've looked at students from MIT and Stanford who are arguably pretty smart kids who were utterly convinced they could multitask. And we had them do homework just alone and then had them do homework with the things they multitask with, either multiple windows open on their screen or a second device where they're doing something and texting at the same time, whatever. The human brain is incapable of multitasking. The human brain does rapid switch tasking from thing to thing to thing, and they are covering more territory, admittedly. But what we found is it takes them longer to get their homework done. They have more mistakes, and they don't retain what they did because they're skimming over the surface of it, but they're not thinking deeply, reflecting on it, and consolidating it in their learning centers. So so we uh, can we get them to listen to the research and hopefully... <laughs> Take take some pearls of parental wisdom. <laughs> we can try. Um, you know, I mean, pearls of parental wisdom are often 
put out there like a shotgun and one pellet hits, right? right. <laughs> well, and I, and I think it's why when I'm working with parents of adolescents, I'm talking so much about why there is an importance in the relationship. And to your point, if you run a police state, they're, they're not going to take those pearls of wisdom. But if you have a healthy relationship, you're much more likely to have their ear about the important things. And, and not if you're commenting on every nuance of their life, but you save it to a few important things, you're more likely to have somebody who says, you know, she's, she's a pretty smart person. She wants to have my back. You know, maybe yeah. I could consider that point of view or that research much more likely than if you have the wall up to the police state parent, right? Absolutely. I mean, you're describing the difference between authoritative and authoritarian parenting, right? You know, authoritarian is do it, you know, my way or the highway, or, you know, and the authoritative one is one that brings knowledge to the child. One of the things I tell the parents of kids who have issues, say, with gaming is instead of saying, you know, turn off Grand Theft Auto, I hate it when you play that game, I hate that game, sit down next to your child and play the game with him or her. And you are doing some very interesting things there. Number one, you are saying, I love you. I respect you. I want to see what attracts you, what draws you in here, what what engages you. You are also entering their domain as their student because there is no way you will play the game as well as they will. And that is a wonderful role reversal for any kid to be the master and have their little pod one there, you know? And then when you finally figure out the 47 different moves it takes to steal a car in Grand Theft Auto, then when you say, I figured out, I figured this out. Now let's talk a little bit about why you might want to be doing this over and over and over again all day. You're coming from a very different place. You're bringing your mature executive functions to bear on what's going on. And you are also recognizing that this young person is still probably a decade or more away from having full executive function. Yeah, the, the team brain takes a lot longer to mature than we knew. And I and also, as we, we toss around the term self-regulation, but uh, Stuart Shanker and some others up here often use the word co-regulation, you know, that we still have mere neurons and we still have an important role in helping our kids regulate. And, uh, and I would say that getting off the tech is one of the places where parents will say, like, why is it that if they lose at playing um, soccer, they might be a poor sport and throw their, you know, glove or kick the ball and be upset that they lost. But when we try to shut down halfway through a game of roadblocks or whatever their fortnight, there seems to be this rage that really frightens parents. And is there a difference between being a poor sport in an in real life activity or flipping the board when you lost at Monopoly as my brothers would do, (laughs) you know, versus what this rage state that seems to happen in homes? Well, I think these are not equal analogies. I mean, losing a soccer game is at least, um, you know, you've completed the game. Where the rage happens is when the game is interrupted, okay? And that's, and that's a very different thing. That, that, that's like, you know, going in and grabbing your kid by the, you know, the neck and pulling him out of the soccer game and halfway through. And I would bet that that would incur some rage too, because there's a lot of components to that. Number one is you want to finish what you complete. Number two is you have peers, friends out there who are depending on you in this game, and you are not only letting them down, but you're embarrassed 
because, you know, your parents said, get off it, you know, and they're always going to be kids whose parents don't say, get off it, right? So you're comparing them to them. So I think that we have to take a step back and realize that these are two very different phenomena um, and that what they are battling also with in, in, the, in the video game environment is this very well-engineered by psychologists games that hook into our basic need for succeeding, prevailing, and connecting with others. So would it be fair to say then that the same way that you, you um, had mentioned that if somebody already has emotional regulation issues or attention deficit or anxiety, and then you put technology in their hands, would it also be fair to say that we also have parents who might have a parenting style whereby they're not so good at consistently enforcing limits and boundaries or not, or who use personal power in a way that can trigger power struggles. And that just also happens to happen with technology, but it would be more of a global interaction. And that might be some of what you see when you see people come to the clinic. It's not maybe so much about just the identified patient child, but more some of the family dynamics and the parenting styles. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, we, we can't go in assuming that every parent is level-headed and sane. Parents bring their own baggage to any relationship, even with their kids. So um, I think that this is a really important thing to recognize. And one of the things that tech can do is become a flashpoint for what starts as normative adolescent autonomy seeking. One of the reasons why I want to educate and empower kids on how to use these devices, um, how to, you know, what, what to use them for, what context to use them in, is so that they can move towards self-regulation. And so they're not seeing it as um, rock and roll in the sense that it's something that I like even more because mom and dad don't understand it. They don't like it. And so I embrace it ever more tightly. And, you know, so what's happened is the very normal and desirable autonomy seeking has become about saving my video game from my terrible parents. And, and that really doesn't, you know, uh, that, that has, bodes no well, nothing good for anybody. Right. So, so if you're um, working with a family then and you're trying to get really practical, so where does a parent do this good media training so that they can uh, help their child understand how to have like, meaning we went and got driver's licenses and we went to driver's school and then we send our kids to driver's school, but we don't really have a place, a good training center for parents, let alone a good training center for kids. So um, how would we accomplish that? And, um, and what would look like a good sort of media plan or some general house rules that, that you could generalize to most families? So you decided instead of giving me just one complex, huge question, you <laughs> Yeah, and could you cure cancer and put someone on Mars at the same time? And we'll just wrap up with that. <laughs> well, let's start with the good media training. First of all, it's important for us as parents to be cognizant of what we are doing, um, how we are using media. We can't be you know, sitting there uh, answering an email on our smartphone at the table and yelling at the kid, stop playing video game and come to dinner. Um, 
So kids, kids hear 1% of what we say and 100% of what we do. And so I think it's really important that we recognize that our own behaviors are model, being modeled all the time. They are seeking from us especially how to be an adult, how to be an effective adult. And so first we need to be sure that we are using our media in ways that are effective, balanced, and aware. I often say that I am more concerned about parents' screen time, particularly with very young children, than about the child's screen time because a parent who is buried in their smartphone is not present for the child. And that is huge. Uh, And there's a lot of research around depressed parents and the effects on the children. And for all the world, someone staring at their smartphone is an equivalent of depressed. So that's, that's one piece. We have at the Center on Media and Child Health actually put together something we call the Family Digital Wellness Guide that actually goes through childhood from infancy right through to young adulthood, stage by stage, talking about what developmental tasks are inherent in that stage, how screens interface with that, how they can be used in positive ways, things to watch out for, and even how to talk to your child about screens, your teenager, or even talked about to your own parents when you leave the babies with the grandparent and they plop them in front of the TV. This is a situation that is often very loaded for people. I've had parents tell me they are more comfortable with the sex talk than they are with the internet talk because rightly or wrongly, they think they know something about sex and they feel clueless with the internet. And so that, I mean, so it is emotionally loaded. And so what we're trying to do with the Family Digital Wellness Guide, which by the way is available for free on our website, and I'll give you the, the link to that, is to really think through the arc of childhood in an environment where there are screens everywhere and how we can just accept that this is the environment they're in and how we can use that environment to help them be smarter, stronger, and kinder. And I think it also bodes well for the push to really make sure we're being effective parents in the early developmental years. So by the time they become that person who's learning about how it, how they're building a relationship and being effective with the tools that we're talking about, that there is that sense of uh, self-esteem, embeddedness in your family, all those other things that must surely be protective factors, you know, so that when you get the bullying comment or you get the body shaming post, or you get the request to just send me a picture of you in your bra, that you are a person who prior to having these tools already had some foundational pieces to say, I'm not going to let that impact me to the same level that somebody who, who didn't have some of those protective pieces now get into these larger, more complex social situations. Absolutely. And, and, you know, this is all about helping the child respect him or herself and each other right? And, uh, and others out there. Um, and, and that's really critical uh, in, in real life as well as online. And I think the more that we can see this as a continuum from the physical world to the digital world, the better off we'll be because we will bring skills we already have into a realm that we thought we had no idea about. And so I think that it, it, it's really important, first of all, to learn from our kids because they are technically more Uh, cutting edge than we are. Um, Learn from them, be their student, and at the same time, help them learn how to be 
the best they can be in that environment. The other thing we need to do is try to um, get rid of the guilt. There, there is so much guilt in parents saying, I've ruined my kid, I let him watch TV when he was under two or whatever. Parenting is different with every child and every parent. And even though we can base it on science and a lot of knowledge um, that we and others have, have accrued, it really is an art ultimately. And like all art, the beauty of it is in its imperfections. The beauty of it is in the, the fingerprints of the potter on the clay, is in the, you know, the, the wild brush strokes of the painter. And you know, we, anybody who thinks that because they've raised one child can raise any child is sadly mistaken. The moment that second child comes out, that second child is totally different. And you have to reinvent it all the time. And that frankly is kind of the fun of it. You know, it's getting to know this whole new unique person who, yes, is a pain in the butt from time to time, but also is going to surprise you with, you know, striking beauty at sometimes and just make you laugh your butt off at sometimes. And and we've got to be there for that instead of trying to be so perfect. We are going to be imperfect. That doesn't mean we can't keep perfecting ourselves. Mm-hmm. And to model how does and to model to our children, as you say how to stand in our lovely imperfection. That's a a wonderful thing to model. Yes, and and this goes back to, for example, the social media thing, which is I think social media can be an instrument of peace when we use it to be authentic to each other. We are not using it to be authentic to each other. We're using it to show off. We're marketing marketing ourselves to the world, and we are... um, basically trying to better each other uh, rather than coming together. Um, We are, you know, competing with each other. And it just makes us all feel bad because we're not competing well enough. Um, And and so um, I think we have to take a step back and look at these powerful tools, what they are capable of, and use them in ways that enhance our humanity. Which I think is a big premise behind the social dilemma, the the documentary that just came out, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and I've been encouraging parents to watch and to watch with their kids and start having some conversations about making that shift now. But Uh, with one caveat. Please. Social dilemma does a very good job of explaining how we got into this mess. They offer no solutions. And that is a problem, uh, to my mind. I think we need to have a sequel that says, here's how we deal with this. Because most people who see that come out and say, I'm getting rid of social media. There's nothing good about it. And that's not, the Luddite approach isn't going to work. We have to move forward and we have to humanize it. And the way we do that, as as I say, is to be authentic, to be our real selves. Let's take a step back and look at what real friendship means. It is not about being perfect or best or good looking or rich or whatever we're doing on social media. It's about our inadequacies and the fact that they make us need each other. We are an inherently social animal and we seek out others, not because we want to be close to somebody who's perfect, but because they complete us because they make us more whole. Um, They compensate for our inadequacies and they like us despite our inadequacies. 
Mm-hmm. That to get that together we are better, right? right. <laughs> not not better than, right? Better yeah. incomplete. Yeah. United uh, we stand, divided we fall. <laughs> yeah, and boy do we need and boy do we need to hear that during a pandemic when we really need to link. We really really need to link arms to to get through this. And I know a lot of parents are feeling very nervous about that. Do you have something during the pandemic and the homeschooling and all those extra burdens that you are constantly sharing that is helpful to parents? Um, you know, how are you, what's the best resources that you're um, able to give parents at this time, given these unique. Uh, situation that they're under now? I think that one thing we have to recognize is COVID is not unique so much as a brand new thing, but it's been an accelerant of, of things that were already going on. We were already moving on to screens more. We were already doing this. So rather than say, oh my God, there's a whole new thing. We have to reinvent ourselves. We just have to look at the fundamentals and, and really understand how best to function in, and what was a best practice before the pandemic may now not be a best practice. And I'll give an example for that. Bringing screens to the dinner table used to be about, you know, watching a video or being elsewhere while you had this moment where you're breaking bread together as a family. Now, a screen at the table may be the way you can have dinner with grandma, right? And so it is the same device, but used in an entirely different way to bring our humanity out and to, and to connect with each other. And one of the things that I worry about is that when we don't think about it, we are letting our near infinite connectivity undermine our connectedness in the deep and meaningful and, and sustaining ways that humans are connected with each other in families, in friendships, etc. And so kind of one of my sort of buzzwords, if you will, to parents is instead of developing our killer app, let's develop our killer bees. And there are three of them. They are be balanced in our on-screen and off-screen lives. Be mindful in our use of these screens. Use them for what they're good for. Don't use them for everything. And most importantly, be present. Be in the moment with your child. Be in the moment with your spouse. Live in the world. Live in real time. You know, one of the things that I really want to do is bring back boredom. Bring back boredom. We have gotten so avoidant of boredom that we can't get in an elevator without looking at our smartphones. But boredom is where creativity lives. Boredom is where imagination lives. Not just because it is a vacuum that needs to be filled, but because that vacuum makes us a little uncomfortable and it drives us to think the new. And instead, we're filling our heads with somebody else's, you know, watered down crazy ideas. Uh, because they happen to be what comes up first. And, and adolescence, I think, uh, in in the evolutionary process is when uh, species do their most adjusting creativity modification, then you're kind of stuck for the rest of adulthood. It's a lot harder. <laughs> so we, with the most, the most opportunity lies with our adolescence, you know, if we Absolutely. can allow you know, them. And, and, and I love working with adolescence because it's a time of, near infinite potential. When I decided to specialize in adolescence, a lot of my pediatric friends said, you're crazy. Why? They're just, you know, they're sullen, they're nonverbal, they're, you know, angry, they're, you know, whatever. And, you know, I say, yeah, but that what's beautiful is when you show them that you respect them 
and that you listen to them and that you'll respond to what you hear, they open up like a flower. Yeah. And the, and, and the, you, you have to parent the child that you got, not the child that you want. So, the, the, you know, biodiversity means there's orchids and roses and thistle and all the rest. And they're all, and they're all beautiful. And uh, right. so to, to come from that position of curiosity of, I wonder who this amazing person that is blossoming in front of me will become and let right. go of previous expectation or, you know, societal norms. It's that, that's part of that parent. Our, our kids do. Absolutely. Cause us to grow if we're willing to see it instead of, of frustration right. as an opportunity for our personal growth too. Absolutely. Well, listen, is there anything else you'd like to, to share before we, that I've missed that I haven't asked that has been on your mind that you want to get out to parents before we wrap up and I'll, and I'll make sure that we um, include all your, your links and ways for people to continue uh, reaching out to you. I would like to say, stay tuned because I'm on the cusp of a, an audacious move. And that audacious move is to, instead of criticizing between, you know, pediatricians and uh, filmmakers or, you know, uh, psychologists and social media designers, I am putting together now something we're calling the Digital Wellness Lab. And I want to build on this base bedrock of evidence that we've accrued over the last 20 years, a place where all of the stakeholders can come together from tech, from the entertainment world, from uh, health insurance and, and from healthcare providers and researchers, roll up our sleeves and work the problem that we share. Um, so synergize instead of criticize. I love it. And thankfully, with the digital world, you can pull people together. The fact that, you know, you're working in Boston and these resources and this ability to connect transcends a postal code. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, we, it's like we're sitting in a living room together, you and I, right now. Yeah. Except uh, we're doing COVID droplets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Listen, I just did my first home workout by Zoom class. It's not the same as being at the gym, I, I'll tell you that, but it was <laughs> certainly better than me trying to work out alone. There's no way I would have done that much, that many burpees. I would have just stopped. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, we, we cheat when we are supervising. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really, really appreciate your time. And I know that uh, parents are going to want uh, uh, more access to your information. So I have promised that we will uh, post all those links in the um, show notes, right. including those downloadable resources that you've got. So you've got the, the a wellness um, family digital wellness guide and yeah. also family digital wellness and return to school 2020, because this has been a return to school like none other. And we want to demystify both the possibility of remote learning and the possibility of going back into the school building because there are a lot of people who have a lot of confusion and concern about that as well. So those are two resources. And for parents who have questions, there's always ask the mediatrician. There's no such thing as a dumb question. We get everything from at what age should I give my child a smartphone to how do I get my 10-year-old son to quit singing Viva Viagra in the supermarket? <laughs> <laughs> and we answer all of them based on the research in a non-judgmental way, in a balanced way, pointing out positives as well as negatives, in a feasible way, something you can do at home now you don't have to take a course or buy a device. You know, this is all an attempt to move us closer to being healthier and 
kinder to each other. Well, thank you for all that you do and for taking uh, time uh, to, uh, to join me today. Hopefully we'll have another opportunity to talk in the future. Thank you so Bye. much. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.